You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. Good morning. It is wonderful to see you face to face. I am grateful that you are here. For those of you joining us online, welcome and thank you for for choosing to spend a portion of your weekend worshiping and, and studying with us. About a week and a half ago, Brady asked me if I'd be willing to speak today, and, and of course I accepted. It was not a big deal. I agreed. And Brady had told me that I could speak on whatever I wanted, whatever I felt led to, to talk about. And so after a time of prayerful consideration and, and just thinking through, I decided what I wanted to, to speak about. And it's this passage, Matthew 22, 34 through 40. Now, that might sound familiar because Brady talked about that last week. Um, So, I want to go ahead and just read this passage. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Imagine my reaction last week because I had already decided on this passage when Brady then quoted this passage and began to expand on the first commandment. My mind began to race as I was concerned that I would now have to pick something else and I had already started preparing my message. But I decided within just a moment that I wanted to calm my spirit and just listen to what Brady had to say. Hear the words that God had given him. So I did that. And by the time Brady was ready to close up and and finish his message, I had realized that I could still speak on pretty much what I wanted to talk about. I would just use a different passage. There is a parallel passage, and that will be our primary text for today, and we'll go there in a few minutes. But I want, uh, before we begin to dig into the text, I want to first ask you a question. Who is our neighbor? I think most of us have probably very similar definitions of what that word means. And in order to understand and to answer the question, we need to to define the word neighbor. So I went to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, and this is the definition that it gives. One, a person near another. Or two, a person, animal, or thing located near another person, animal, or thing. And while those definitions are okay, they're still rather vague if, if you ask me. And I think, really, if, if we're going to answer this question honestly as to how it applies to us, we have to, we have to ask about the cultural context. Right? We have to put that question back into first century Judaism from that perspective. Let me read this excerpt from Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. Thus, when we enter into the New Testament period, we are to understand the biblical laws of the Old Testament that speak of neighborliness as injunctions 
for special treatment of fellow Jews. Jews showed special love for fellow Jews because they were covenantly and racially bonded together. The social realities of Jewish history with the constant battering of the people of Israel and other nations also inclined the Jewish people to favor their own. Realities also reveal that the Jews were kind to Gentiles in general, and for those Jews who lived in the diaspora, there was also a general social friendliness to be observed. However, Jewish practice had come to the general conviction that a neighbor, in purely legal terms, was a Jew or proselyte to Judaism. And of course, if you know me, you know that I always need to include an ancient rabbinical saying in any of my messages. So today's not going to be any different. My, my saying for this week is, a teaching without a parable is like a basket without handles. It'll hold something, but it is difficult to take it to yourself, hold on to it, and truly understand it. So a parable. A parable is a simple story used by the rabbis to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. It was not intended necessarily to be a true story or even um, historically or geographically accurate, but just to get the point across. And by the audience, there was an expectation that within a parable, we might label as artistic license would be used. And we will see that this morning as we look through our, our passage and our parable. But before we go to the text, have any of you ever been to or seen pictures of the road that runs from Jerusalem to Jericho? Anyone? Well, I've got three of them that I want to share with you today before we start on our passage. The green line that weaves all over the bottom part of the page is the approximately 20 mile or so path. Road is really a stretch, as you'll see shortly. Path that leads from Jerusalem up on the mountain, down through, winding down through the Judean hillside, ultimately to the Jordan River Valley and Jericho. The next slide, here, you can see just how big this road is. For most of its 20 miles, it's no larger than 18 inches. This final slide, to put it in perspective, is the road at one of its widest points. Yes, widest points. And I want you to notice that there's not a whole lot of place for somebody to be laying along the side on either side. That is the context, geographically, of where our story is set, where our parable is set. So, I'm going to open by saying that once an expert in the law, in an attempt to rationalize and justify his own racial and religious prejudice, asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? This lawyer scribe unknowingly expresses a fundamental issue in all of ethics. For whom are we responsible when it comes to issues of justice and mercy? So as we read through our parable today, I want you to keep that question in, in the forefront of your mind. Jesus' answer 
was the parable of the Good Samaritan. uh, And the fundamental ideas of this parable find their roots, not just in um, Old Testament and Jewish soil in general, but deeply planted in the Torah, the five books of Moses. So let's take a look. Our primary text today will be Luke 10, verses 25 through 30. Read it again. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly. Jesus said, do this and you will live. But he, the expert, wanted to justify himself. So he asked, and who is my neighbor? Who is Jesus talking to? An expert in the law. A lawyer, scribe, one who is intimately familiar with Torah. So it could be that this expert is one of four possible groups within Judaism. But I believe that his initial response gives us a hint as to which of the four groups that he's actually a part of. Uh, If you study the major religious groups within Judaism in the first century, there are four, as I said, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, and the Herodians. There's a fifth group, but none of the other four would have considered them to be part of Judaism. So for right now, we're going to leave them out. Let's focus on the four and see if we can identify what group this expert might have been a part of. I think it's safe to say, because of the interaction, it's not a Herodian. If you know anything about the Herodians, they weren't really big on faith. They were more of a political party. They wanted to put an ancestor, an heir of Herod the Great, on the throne in Judea and throughout other places where Herod the Great had ruled. That was their primary goal. I think it's also pretty safe to say that it isn't an Essene. And if you study the Essenes, you learn that they, much like the Pharisees, were very strict in their observance, but what made them very different was they didn't want to be part of day-to-day life. They didn't want to be contaminated by the things that were happening within the Sadducean priesthood. Most of them, or many of them, came out of the Sadducean priesthood and went to live in the wilderness in small, tight groups, think Qumran, probably the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls, certainly where they were kept and where where we found them was in the caves near Qumran. But probably not in the scene because the scene would not want to be around the other people. So that leaves the two groups that we are probably the most familiar with as students of the text, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now, what's the biggest difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees? Does anybody remember? Supernatural. The Sadducees did not believe in resurrection, angels, demons, heaven, hell. They didn't believe in the supernatural. The Pharisees did. And another major difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees was the way that they interpreted the Torah. The Sadducees took a literal view, right? 
whatever the word used meant is what Torah meant. So a Sadducee would typically put things like the purity laws, the dietary laws, all of those things, the sacrificial laws, above saving a human life. Now, not, not somebody who likely to be saved, but if somebody was really, really seriously injured or ill, and it wasn't likely that they were going to be saved, a literal interpretation of the law would say, they're already dead, let them be. So they wouldn't act. So my guess is that this, this expert is probably a Pharisee. Now let's talk about the Pharisees for a minute. The Pharisees used the oral law. Right? The Pharisees were mostly the rabbis. The Sadducees were the priests and the Levites. The Pharisees were probably the, the revenant, the rabbis, who raised up when they were in exile because there was no temple and there, the priests were not able to serve in their official capacity. So these rabbis, these scholars, were primary teachers of Israel during that time. So its likelihood uh, of this being a Pharisee is pretty high, in my opinion, based on the evidence because the Pharisees used an interpretation of Torah called what we would say the, the spirit of the law. The, the Sadducees used what we would say in our vernacular, maybe the letter of the law, and the Pharisees, the spirit of the law. And so to the Pharisee, the law was all about life. How do we have life with God? How do we live our best life as followers of God? Okay? And so life is most important. And so to a Pharisee, the spirit of the law was life. And so a Pharisee would elevate saving a life above all the other laws. Uh, cleanliness, purification, dietary, sacrifice, all of those things would be secondary to life. And life would be secondary only to loving God. So let's go to verse 30 and pick up. And I think with that understanding, it helps set the stage for the interaction, what, what we would call the parable. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Now before I read any further, let's examine this. What do we notice about the two characters presented? Who are they? Priest and a Levite, a Sadducee. They take a literal interpretation of the text. So, I believe again, the expert that Jesus is telling this parable to is a Pharisee, and I think what he's doing is he's setting the stage for this Pharisee to come to his own conclusions. Two Sadducees walk down this road. They come to a guy who's hurt. They go around. I think it wouldn't be much of a stretch if this is a Pharisee that Jesus is expecting him to say, so the next guy who comes is going to be a Pharisee. And a Pharisee is going to help this guy. I th My opinion... But I could see that. I can see that in this story as it unfolds. I, 
again, geographically unlikely for anybody to go around. You remember the pictures? There's no way no, anyone's going around on the other side. If you're going to go by this person, you're going over them. Okay? Or at least right against them to get by. I think this is a setup. I think this parable is a setup. Because the point of the parable is to teach a religious or a spiritual point. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. So the, the Pharisee begins to draw his own conclusion. The expert begins to draw his own conclusion. And to expect that what's going to happen next is the Pharisee is going to come along, another Jew, and will stop and help. And at this point, you might be thinking, wait a second, though. The guy isn't dead. He's only half dead. So he's still half alive. So the priests and the Levites should stop and help. Well, let's take a look at that. Because I want to submit to you that the priest and the Levite weren't being sinful. They were doing what they believed the law told them to do. Leviticus 21, 1 through 4, in the rules for priests, says this. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, a priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean for any of his people who die, except for a close relative such as mother, father, son, daughter, brother, or an unmarried sister who is dependent on him since she has no husband. For her sake, their sake, he may make himself unclean. He must not make himself unclean for people related to him by marriage, and so defile himself. And while it doesn't directly apply to this parable, I want to take this a step further. What if you're the high priest? Let's go a few verses further down to verse 10. The high priest, the one among his brothers who has uh, had the anointing of oil poured on his head and who has been ordained to wear the priestly garments, must not let his hair become unkempt or tear his clothes. He must not enter a place where there is a dead body. He must not make himself unclean, even for his father or mother, nor leave the sanctuary of God or desecrate it, because he has been dedicated by the anointing oil of his God. I am the Lord. Pretty strict rules. And if you were to read that and interpret that literally, the priest and the Levite were doing what God had told them to do. If those are the priority, love God, then follow these things as they mean word for word, they were doing the right thing. Right? They didn't want to defile themselves and break what God had told them. So remember I said just a few minutes ago, I believe that the portion of the parable that we're reading this at this point is a setup. And that Jesus is allowing this expert to believe that a Pharisee is going to come along and help this guy. So imagine for just a moment, if you will, as Jesus goes on, the expression on his face when the next character arrives. Picking up in verse 33. But a Samaritan, how did the Jews view Samaritans? But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? 
The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So imagine with me. Imagine with me the look on this expert's face when it's not a Pharisee. When it's not even a Herodian or an Essene, but a Samaritan. If you remember back at the start of this interaction, I said there was a fifth group of Jews that the other four wouldn't recognize. That's the Samaritans. The Samaritans were filthy half-breeds who had defiled themselves and were despised greatly by all other parts of Judaism. Do you know what the Samaritan's Bible was? Anyone? Torah. The Samaritans, just like the Sadducees, followed Torah. They just did it up in Samaria. They didn't come to the temple. So, let that sink in. All three of these people who go by have the same rules. All three of these people that go by have a very similar interpretation. But one, the most despised of all of them, stops to help. Not only does he clean and bandage the wounds there on the side of the road, he puts the wounded man on his own beast of burden, on his own donkey, and travels. It doesn't say whether he goes to Jerusalem or to Jericho. It doesn't matter for our parable. But he travels to an inn. And he doesn't just drop the guy off somewhere in town, but he stays with him overnight. And in the morning, he gives the innkeeper not just enough to cover that night's lodging, but enough to cover multiple days, lodging and care. And he says to the innkeeper, take care of this guy. And when I come back, if you have any additional expense, I'll pay for it. The Samaritan. Of all three passerbys, the one who probably had the greatest reason to say, whatever I'm leaving, I'm going beyond, is the one who stops and helps and pays for continued care. I can almost picture the face of the expert as Jesus comes to the end of this interaction, now turned down to the ground as he responds to Jesus' question to him. Look at the passage. What does he say? He can't say the Samaritan is the neighbor. The one who had mercy. Can you experience in yourself that that wrestling within his heart as Jesus asks him this question? See, a parable is designed to make you make a decision. Right there, it's to force you into a decision. And this expert is being forced into a decision. So I want to ask you again, who is our neighbor? I believe with all my heart that Jesus' answer is all mankind. Those who we despise, those that we do not agree with, those we don't get along with, those who vote differently than us, those who don't want to wear a mask, those who... You, you see where I'm going, right? We don't have to get along 
to treat them like neighbors. We don't have to approve to treat them like neighbors. We don't have to be close friends to treat them like neighbors. I think for far too long, the Western church has looked at other Christians as our neighbors. And possibly some people in society who, who are not really bad, they might be our neighbors. But family, do you and I look at those that we don't agree with as neighbors? Because I believe Jesus' message says that's exactly who our neighbor is. The one that you despise the most is the one you need to intentionally show love to. Yes, you need to love the others around you, but you need to make an effort to show love to those you don't We don't have to condone sin, but we are to love sinners. The commandment that Jesus gives to this expert and to us in this parable is to love your neighbor. Would you pray with me? Father, so often in our day-to-day lives we find ourselves confronted by by those we just don't understand, those that we, we fundamentally can't agree with, those who rub us the wrong way, or even those who intentionally despise us and treat us ill. And Father, while we, we may feel we have the right to return that, if we understand our rabbi's teaching then it should be clear to us that our job is not to return ill for ill, but to intentionally treat them with love and respect, with honor and with grace, and show mercy. Father, my prayer this morning is that for each and every one of us, is that you would open our eyes to what you see, open our hearts to what you know, Open our ears to what you hear. And open our hands to love those who are the hardest to love. To be your hands and your feet. To show mercy. To love our neighbors. It's in your name that I pray.